Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Corn Tucker's in Slater Kinney. They're maybe the most influential rock band in the last 20 years or so. Definitely top 10. Being in a band is important to Corin, and it always has been. She started her first band when she was a teenager. I actually started telling people that I was in a band before I had written a single song. <laughs> like abandoned another high school? No, no, in, in Olympia, <laughs> every, everyone was like, prom. no, everyone in Olympia was like, well, my band is playing the show. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start a band, too. We're going to be called Heavens to Betsy, and we're going to be great. And then I, my bluff was totally called because the International Pop Underground Convention was happening in Olympia. And my friend Michelle Noel was like, well, we're going to organize a girl night. And she called me at my parents' house and was like, we want you to play girl night. I was like, okay, great. I'll be there. <laughs> you know, like not having written a single piece of music. So no music, no band, no bandmates. She was about to go up on stage in front of her idol. Some story. It's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Corin Tucker. Her band Slater Kinney isn't shy and ferocious. Corin says she was inspired as a kid for the first time when she saw Kathleen Hanna and her band Bikini Kill. I mean, she was just I'd like a power to behold on the stage. It was very confrontational. It was not cozy. It was not about entertainment at all. Then later on, something 100% less punk rock. Tom Arnold, comedian, actor, raconteur, and I'm going to go ahead and say completely different from however you imagine him. Arnold grew up in Ottumwa, Iowa. Worked in a meatpacking was pretty much all he could imagine for himself, life-wise. Then one day on the street, he met Andy Kaufman, right there in Ottumwa. Kaufman was in town to wrestle women. And somehow, after that strange meeting, everything started to make sense. It was time travel up to that point, but now it's I see it's possible. It's making sense. He came to Ottumwa, Iowa. I could go to Hollywood. Tom Arnold on Iowa Roseanne, and his strange and varied career. And I'll tell you about the most beautiful movie ever made that features a guy with a stalk of celery coming out of his butt. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's not an exaggeration to say that Corin Tucker and her band Slater Kinney changed rock forever. They're probably the most beloved and acclaimed all-female band in the history of rock. A generation of young women and tons of young men besides have come of age loving this bold, aggressive band and their bold, aggressive sound. In 2015, Slater Kinney came back from nearly a decade's break with another brilliant record, No Cities to Love. Corin Tucker plays guitar and sings in the band. I spoke with her on the tail end of their tour that year. Corin, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Were you scared to be in Slater Kinney again at all? 
I think I had approximately 10 anxiety dreams <laughs> about that first show. Yes, I was a little bit terrified. Can I ask you what how your anxiety dreams manifest? Oh, there were there were some uh, many permutations. Uh, one there's definitely the, I, the I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> like the classic like wait, I'm on stage. I don't have any pants. There was definitely the uh, my amp has blown up again. No words come come to my mouth at all. Like just all of those things. I sometimes have anxiety dreams about not having done my homework in middle school. Yeah. As an adult. Yeah. And it's it's exactly that feeling like, oh, my gosh, the pressure's on. Like we can't show up not being even better than we were. You know, we were all just like terrified that we were going to suck. I can't if we came back as a band. Well, because I imagine you, the band went on, went on hiatus in the mid 2000s, like 2006 or something like that. Mm-hmm. I imagine that, like, over the course of the next 10 years living in Portland, just like once a day, somebody probably stops you at the park or at the Whole Foods or whatever and says, like, oh my God, Slater Kenny is so important to me because of these reasons. <laughs> You know, I have to say that Portlanders are much cooler than that. (laughs) They're so completely cool. Like, I will be going through the coffee line and, um, you know, like getting my coffee and scone. And and the girl at the coffee place will be like, okay, yeah, um, there's not going to be any charge for that. Love your band. Great. Have a great day. Like, (laughs) like, Like, so calm, cool, and collected. So, yeah, I mean it, but you still you still have that kind of feeling like, wow, I, you know, if we were if we were going to do it again, we really didn't want to screw it up. What what would have constituted screwing it up to, in your mind? I think a record that didn't live up to our own expectations was that was the worst fear is that we wouldn't be able to write together again and have I guess that we, you know, initially we were like, "Oh, should we just play some shows together again?" And then it was like, oh, that's too boring. Like we can't, that, you know, we can't do that because everyone else has done that. So it was like we have to write new material. And then once that kind of cat is out of the bag, then it's like, well, what is that going to be like? What what would be what would be interesting? What would sound fresh? And you know, and then <clears throat> it's just like a series of you know trying different things, trying different songs, and being like, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. So. Eventually, we hit some things that were like, okay, yeah, that, that's interesting, you know. Tell me about the world that you were part of when you were 17, 18, 19, when you were in college at Evergreen and stuff. Like, who were the people that it changed the direction of your life? Well, I went to college in Olympia, and I was very young. And, <laughs> I mean, I was like a teenager. I mean, I, my son is like... 14 and the thought of him like at 17 going to college I'm like oh my god you know I went every single night I could downtown in Olympia to whatever punk rock show was happening and Calvin Johnson you know would put on punk rock shows once a week and I would go to every single one I tried to talk to everyone there and I just wanted to know every single person I wanted to see every single band I wanted to watch every single thing and I did, you know, as much as I could. I got invited to house parties. I saw Nirvana play in the mods. They played all over the campus. And I just went to every single performance I could. I soaked it all up because 
I thought it was fascinating. And I really studied it in terms of how do different people perform? How do they play music? How do they write songs? You know? And then it was, I think, Valentine's Day, 1991. And Bratmobile and Bikini Kill played in Olympia. And it's just, I was like, that's it? That's, I mean, it was just like so life-changing. It was, you know, watching Kathleen Hanna perform, the whole band, their songwriting, everything about it. I was like, this is, this is life-changing. That show was the night I was like, okay, that's it. What specific things about it? Everything about it. It was the most electrifying performance. It was in your face. It was totally confrontational. Kathleen was the most charismatic performer. I mean, she was just had like a power to behold on the stage. It was very confrontational. It was not cozy. It was not about entertainment at all. Just great lyrics. Um, an incredible voice. And the music was just really simple, but really well-written, I thought. I mean, everyone was like, all the girls in the audience were crying. You know, we were like moved beyond words. And it was just, it was just like this electric feeling of someone expressing all of these things that we're going through. As a teenage girl, your world is just like, it's so confusing. It's so painful you know when you when you hit puberty and you're suddenly like this very sexual being and that and that identity is like all the world sees you know but it's like we just wanted more for ourselves than that and to have someone express all those things on stage and to be like this is my show this is what I think of of my world and who I want to be it was just like oh it was just a total life-changing experience. Do you remember the time that you sat down to write a song for real for the first time? Yeah, I do. <laughs> this is so funny. I actually started telling people that I was in a band before I had written a single song. <laughs> <laughs> like a band at another high school? <laughs> no, no, in, in Olympia, <laughs> every, everyone was like, prom. no, everyone in Olympia was like, well, my band is playing the show. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start a band, too. We're going to be called Heavens to Betsy, and we're going to be great. And then I, my bluff was totally called because the International Pop Underground Convention was happening in Olympia. And my friend Michelle Noel was like, well, we're going to organize a girl night. And she called me at my parents' house and was like, we want you to play girl night. I was like, okay, great. I'll be there. <laughs> you know, like not having written a single piece of music. And my dad gave me his guitar and <laughs> bought me an amp. Wait, did you know how to play guitar at the time? How far was this, had this been stretched? I had tried playing the guitar from the time I was like 15 or 16 and like picked it up, put it down, picked it up, put it down. And then literally, I, it was like I like had a show booked. And so I was like, I really have to figure this out. So I just went to my parents' house. This is after my first year in college. So I guess I was maybe 18, actually, to be honest. And I just sat in my bedroom and wrote. The first song I can remember writing was My Red Self from my first band, Hemets to Betsy. 
a song about getting your period. I mean, like, it's just classic Riot Girl. But it was a really emotional song. And when we actually performed it, I mean, I was, like, shaking like a leaf when we played that show. But people cried. Like, it was, it was like an instant connection that was all about emotion for me in a way that, like, connected my voice with people. It was a very rewarding experience to take that kind of a risk and have people connect with it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Corin Tucker. She sings and plays guitar with the band Slater Kinney. What song that you wrote when you were younger are you most proud of now? I think the song Baby's Gone that I wrote for Heavens to Betsy was just a really interesting song. It's pretty controversial because it's written from the point of view of a ghost. So it's it's actually a teenage girl who has an unwanted pregnancy and gets basically like an illegal abortion and dies. And she tells her story for, sort of from the grave. And it just was like that intensity of emotion of, of the confusion that comes along with all these ideas about sexuality and about making choices, at, you know, and and be and you have to be like, think about all that stuff when you're still a child yourself, you know. So being able to put that into a storyline, <laughs> I guess, that's something I'm I'm kind of proud of that I I did. Do you think of yourself as being punk rock in 2015? And you can define the terms for me if we want. I think that we sort of write our own chapter in that, you know, we still think about the decisions of how we want to be a band, how we want to set things up, what's important to us, what music do we want to make, just all those decisions. You know, we put ourselves in charge and, you know, we are we collaborate with the record label. Sub Pop's great, but, you know, I still feel like um, the band has our value system still kind of in check, the way that we we do things today even. I want to play a song from Slater Kinney's 1996 album, Call the Doctor. My guest is Corin Tucker, the singer of Slater Kinney. That's called, it's a a real sort of seminal Slater Kinney song called I, I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone. I think is so cool about that song is it so kind of carefully sets up the expectation in its presentation of being a love a relationship song that's about assuming the power of Joey Ramone not about you know what I mean not about being something for someone else yeah 
I think that part of what we do a lot of times in Slater Kinney is we take on these, you know, dramatic rock roles. You know, that's what's really fun is that there's a lot of like play involved. And that's what I've always loved about, you know, bands like Queen or Led Zeppelin or any of those great, you know, 70s and 80s rock bands is that you would have this dramatic persona that artists would embody on stage, you know, and and I think that Carrie and I have played with that idea, having like different larger than life characters that we'll take on and and different personas and you know, explore the idea of of relationship with that. I think that that element is really fun to play with with the lyrics. That drama in rock music is almost always, I mean like 89% of the time about male sexuality. Yeah. And that's so that makes it a very interesting and uh challenging thing for a band of three women to assume. Yeah, that's what I love about it. I mean, I think that's a really that's a really like important part of Slater Kinney is you know talking about sexuality talking about female sexuality and how different that is I know that it's really different for people to hear and I know that the lyrics are very unique and I think that people you know I really think that people when we first started as a band sometimes we're kind of like yikes you know (laughs) Like, that's what that sounds like. That's kind of weird, you know. Now it's like 20 years later and people are so much more comfortable with it. I mean, it's great. You know, people are just like rocking out at the shows and I don't see as many like <laughs> like people wincing as much during the during the shows. People are just like, yeah, bring it. What I really like about it is, especially in the sort of rocking out, it doesn't feel to me like you are – erasing your gender that you're not simply saying we're just we're just one of the boys and at the same time there's no archness to it i mean there's some elements of fun as you said but there's there's no like what if girls <laughs> did boy stuff right. element and in, instead you are just kind of asserting a third way which is like hey this is what we are and we're gonna do some rocking out now yeah you know yeah yeah I mean I think that having people to look up to like the b-52s who were always who always to me uh, kind of presented themselves that way they were like a band made up of male female you know different sexualities different personalities distinctive hairstyles distinctive hairstyles a lot of good looks happen a lot of looks I think that we wanted to present ourselves as like, this is who we are. As different as that may seem to some people, like the whole point is to kind of get out of your head a little bit and to fill up the room a little bit more with your own ideas and to to like release that feeling of otherness that you might have about who you are. What's it like to be in a genuinely iconic rock band and also have a job? Corin Tucker of Slater-Kinney tells me after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Tom Hanks. Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? 
Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a tiny desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music. All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash contest. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash bullseye. The three of you enter a cave of a big red dragon and is standing over a hoard of precious golden rubies. And he says, what do you do, adventurers? I'm a dragon man. I cast fire on him. It's very good. I address the red dragon to say, us, we're the hosts of The Adventure Zone, a podcast about family playing Dungeons and Dragons. Very good synergy. Commit to the bit. I, I, <laughs> I roll to charm new listeners. It is very effective against all odds. Everybody, we're the McRoys. We host the Adventure Zone. It's a podcast where we play Dungeons and Dragons together. It's a comedy podcast. We don't take the rules too seriously because there's a lot of them and we did not take the time to learn them. Maybe listen to us. We come out every other Thursday on the Maximum Fun Network. You can find us on iTunes or on MaximumFun.org. I think this promo is a critical hit. <laughs> It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Corin Tucker. She sings and plays guitar in the band Slater Kinney. When Slater Kinney started to take off, it was at a distinctive time in rock history. Basically, you know, in the mid to late 1990s was the start of the ascent of Slater Kinney and the start of the sort of hard descent of rock and roll as being a central force in American music culture. And I don't mean rock and roll is dead or anything like that. Like plenty of great rock and roll continues to be made, et cetera, et cetera. But Nirvana were the most important band in the world in a way that there is no rock band that is equivalent now, you know? Yeah. How does it feel different to be performing in a context where on the one hand – what was once like alternative rock or punk rock is that this is close to the center of rock culture. But on the other hand, rock culture as a whole is on the margins of pop music culture. In a way, we started the music scene that we did because we felt like that giant rock culture was devoid of any real meaning anyway. You know, I mean, for us, it was just, it was a lot of like, drugs and money and macho and you know I'm and I mean specifically like growing up and the 80s kind of metal culture that just was everywhere it seems so rank to us that you know that was that was part of the reason why the whole you know international pop underground just was like that's that's so interesting to me because it was always the marriage of a kind of a thoughtfulness of going about business and treating people and in, in your life that was interesting to us, that we always pursued that. 
And so to me, the fact that the entire music industry is kind of, you know, like crumbled is like, yeah, yeah. It doesn't actually surprise me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it makes it, uh, it makes it a little harder to uh, get the frisson of feeling like you're oppositional. Yeah. It's definitely different to be a band, you know, after this long and, and to try and figure out, you know, who who are we? But, you know, we are an accomplished band. We do have a lot of records and we, we do put on a good show for people. And that we're, we're more comfortable in that role of, like, we can play a, a bigger show. We can fill up a larger venue and and just step into it and be like, yeah, you know, this is this is what we do. And, and we have fun doing it. Why didn't Slater Kinney exist for the years that Slater Kinney didn't really exist? I think there was there's several answers to that question. I'm a patient man. I'll yeah. listen. Okay. Well, I think for me, being a parent, just it's super challenging, you know? So important, too. It's so important. Like, oh, man, this is way more important. It's than way more important else. than being on a rock and roll tour, for sure. I think that... Getting in the cycle of, like, write, record, tour for a year, I mean, that's usually the cycle for a band. It's like, that was killing me. It was just killing me. And it was, at the time, my son was, like, four. And I and it was just, like, it was just really, really hard, you know. And, it, and it's almost like this catch-22 of, like, the band did really well. And it was, and it, we suddenly were like, "Oh, well, you'll you'll be going away for six weeks, you know, on this thing." And I was like, "I'm this is really hard for me, you know." So there was that struggle going on for me. It's also just like we kind of got in a rut of like putting out another record and touring some more, and then putting out another record and touring some more. You know, it's it just it was feeling a little bit kind of played out in a way. Even though I love the woods, and I feel like it was this new direction for us. There was like an element of being just tired of being on tour, I think. That's answer number one. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone else. There's other parts to that answer. There's Carrie's answer and there's Janet's answer. So I think those answers are, you'll get those answers. But I guess I'll just speak for myself and say that we were not having a good time on tour to the point where I was like, this is this is really not working. And I think that comes back to the idea of, like, do we have who we are in check? Like, are we willing to do this and just do it for the money if we're really, like, not having a good time on tour? And the answer is no. It's definitely not. We're not willing to do that because there's there's, there's just too much at stake. At the same time, when you have kids, all of a sudden doing something for the money has very different ramifications because there's a kind of life that you can have if it's just you where you just like make enough money to pay your rent or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's no you did, there's a kind of get by life that you can have when you don't have anyone depending on you. Yeah. I, I would imagine that part of what was scary about putting a really successful band on hold. It's like, okay, so then I guess I, I try and get a job. We all we all got jobs. I still have a job. That's the other part, I think, of, 
of getting older is like realizing, yeah, music might not be the way that you make your your living. It's not like you're going to be able to retire to your own private island anymore. You're really not going to be able to do that. I had a conversation a couple of years ago with Tim Harrington from Les Savvy Fav. And at the time, he, in addition to being in Les Savvy Fav, was um, uh, working as a graphic designer for VH1. And, you know, I was talking to him about that. And one of the things he told me is like, he's like, well, one of the really good parts about this job is it's VH1 where music lives. And so they can't complain when I say I have to go be in Les Savvy Fav. <laughs> Like when you apply for a job, do you have to be like, just so you know, um, I have a band with my name in the title and then this other band that's like one of the most important rock bands the last 20, 25 years. So just like once in a while, I'm going to disappear for three months. I know. It is a little bit like that, but I'm very, very fortunate and they're super understanding. Do you have to send emails when you're on tour with Sandra Kinney? <laughs> Does your boss email you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I do, I work, I kind of telecommute. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you're like, you're like Skyping into board meetings from the Slater Kenny tour bus? <laughs> I haven't done it from the tour bus, but. We should mention that you work for Archer Daniels Midland <laughs> as a chemical, plant and chemical scientist. I'm so grateful for them for that mm-hmm. opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you know what? It's like. I feel like that's the other good thing about the economy today is, like, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? All the young people have, like, three jobs, and they're, like, hosting their pickle cart or whatever in Portland and doing their <laughs> other job, you know? I'm like, come on. Why can't I do it, too? <laughs> it is a convenient time to live in Portland, the city where the economy is, uh, is fermentation-based. It it completely is. I mean, that's the thing about Portland is that everyone else is in a rock band, too. You know what I mean? Like, all the other parents that I know are also, their band is also on tour. So they're just like, it's like a shoulder shrug of like, oh, you're going on tour again? Whatever. Corn Tucker, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Corin Tucker, she's a third of the group Slater Kitty. Their album, No Cities to Love, was released in 2015. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Tom Arnold is a genuine show business survivor. In the mid-90s, he got famous, both the kind of famous you want to be and maybe the kind of famous you don't want to be. And after 25 years in Hollywood, from Roseanne to, you know, less successful stuff, Tom Arnold is still working, and he's still making headlines. I talked to him in 2015. Tom Arnold, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Let's talk about Iowa a little bit. Yeah. Because you're from Iowa, and it it seems to be a really essential part of who you are, that you're from Iowa. Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? I grew up in Ottumwa, Iowa, southeast Iowa. Uh, it is a uh, obviously a working class uh, farm related. Uh, the industries, whether it be John Deere, was the place, the best place to work to build farm machinery, and and the Hormel Meatpacking Plant where I worked. Those are really the two best jobs there. Uh, uh, 
uh, my dad ran a plant called Rexdord, which made industrial knives. And uh, I asked him, I said, uh, I need a job. And uh, can I come and work for you? Like, you know, yours is my dad. He goes, no, no. But if uh, Louis Dudica over at Hormel will uh, hire you, I will hire his son to work here. And I said, why, why don't you just hire me? And he said, because I, I know for sure that I'll have to fire you. And it'll be easier if Louis Dudica fires you. And Louis Dudica fired me. But, it, but I had three great years there. Good job. So, uh, here's the thing about a meatpacking plant yeah. is that um, it's a very difficult job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm guessing in, in the time you had, it was probably a union job, so it was probably mm-hmm. reasonably well paid. It was. Um, but above all else, it's a really dangerous job. It is a dangerous job. Because you slaughter 5,000 animals a day. You kill 5,000 animals. Uh, I remember we were both. Did you ever get hurt? Well, I cut, always doing something stupid. I uh, I worked on the ham fatting line, which is a, where they, you take the fat off the hams and make cure 81 hams, which is Hormel's finest ham. You have to, and you got to keep your knives real sharp. We had electronic circular knives. So the guy that takes the skin off the ham, the skitter, he basically takes the ham and spins it, and he has this sh- giant razor blades that just sh- take the skin off the ham because the skin is uh, the hog skin is thick. You know, it's pig skin. That guy says he has to take a leak, so I jump up there. It's not my job, but I'm going to finish skinning this uh, val- this bucket of hams, right? So we get out of there. The first one I spun around and cut my thumb because I heat wore. Uh, <laughs> he had now I know why he wore those mesh uh, gloves, steel gloves. <laughs> he cut my thumb completely in half, and I, if you see the, you can see my scar. And so mm-hmm. I was like, "Damn it!" Now I got off. I went over to the doctor. Same doctor we had on our high school football team. He worked for Hormel. He sat me down there. This is just a doctor that, that yeah, works for him. He worked for Hormel. He sewed it right there, and then I had to finish the day. And I was like, what do you have to do around here to get some peace? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tom Arnold, the comedian, actor, and former meat processor. Did you feel like you could see out of the town where you grew up? When you were a kid, like, could did you, what picture did you have of the world beyond its borders? Well, when we got color TV, and I remember seeing California, and it was probably the Rose Bowl, watching this game, and they had this, the lights and the city and the, the beautiful sky and the palm trees, and it was such a different world. But it was like, oh, this is magical place out there. You know, uh, my aunt moved to New York. You know, to do, uh, she was an actress, and, and I was like, just, she sent pictures, and I'd be like, that is just impossible. That's it, but boy, I'm not sure how you do that. And I always thought, when I got the dream to be a comic, because that I did that out of necessity, because I it, in our town, you got the <laughs> beat out of you all the time. The older kids, it was a gauntlet getting to school. It's very violent thing and which eventually you grow up to be big like me and you get each one of those guys i got the last guy chris amenhauser he terrified us all he was a couple years older and at the day i graduated from high school we had the graduation party he showed up and started picking on me and i just i let him have it i finally got the last guy on the last day of school my friends also were picked on by the older kids and you you get mouthy but then one day i said something funny and they didn't beat us up i and, and i also had self-esteem issues i wanted the guys that were to like me and i probably still have 
a little bit of that, but not, you know, as much. It does get you in terrible relationships where you're like, this person does not like me, but they will. So we're going to get married. <laughs> they, they, they don't like me. They don't like uh, their own fathers. They don't like anybody. We're going to get married. I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to be the hero. And it's all my fault. It's 100% my fault. But, uh, you know, I, I, it just – and then my dad, uh, honestly, my mother, when I was four, she left. She was, uh, she was very young when she had me and just never wanted to be a mom. I mean she said it. I'm not maternal. She said that to me. I'm four years old. Okay. But my dad, um, you know, he worked very hard. He had three little kids. So I was four. My sister was three. My brother was one. And how many 22-year-old guys take three kids? I mean I'm, you know, later in life and, and sat sort of. And it's a handful having one kid. It is exhausting. So, uh, but I at night I could hear him laughing if there was a Bob Hope special. Bob Hope was this comedian. I'm sure you remember, and he had a special every few months. And that was the only time I heard my dad laughing. I mean, laughing hard. He'd be downstairs. I'd be like, "That's a good sound." Him laughing. Uh, I'm going to be a comedian because that's what makes my dad sound like that. And so, one of one of the first jobs I got in Hollywood, probably 1988, maybe was to do a Bob Hope special. And uh, it was towards the end of his run, but it meant something to my dad. But as I like, oh, that's real. Because uh, my family doesn't consider anything real here. So why did you think you could become a comedian? Like what said to you, I can move to, you first moved to Minneapolis, but um, I can move out of my hometown, not work at the plant where my grandfather worked for 50 years, and go into show business. I it was not possible. I decided to get from Ottumwa, Iowa to Hollywood. It's just physically. I look at a map. It just doesn't. There's no way. One night, uh, I went to our. We had a place called the Jailhouse, which was our disco. Disco. It just got to Ottumwa, Iowa, and I walked out of there, and standing there was Andy Kaufman, like Andy Kaufman from Taxi. And I'm like, what the? He's why? How? What? He had come, he was uh, doing uh, meditation at Maharishi International University, which is in Fairfield, Iowa, 20 miles away from Ottumwa, believe it or not. And he came down to Ottumwa, and there was a women's wrestling event, and he paid them to stay late, and he wrestled all the women at the Ottumwa Coliseum. If I'd have known that was happening, I would have been there. And then he took everybody to Happy Joe's Pizza, the whole crowd, in buses. So I said, that's my dream, to be so... Beloved, that I could go and pay people to wrestle me and then take everybody to Happy Joe's Pizza. It was really about getting the people in my hometown to like me, which <laughs> yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> Let's drill it down. Does it's, not the, it's not the lady wrestling. No. Necessarily. It's not necessarily yeah. the pizza. No. Specifically. Specifically. It was just a, that's what really was. But I said, oh, he came here from Hollywood. Like he physically came here. I could do it. I'd go back there. You know, like a, it was time travel up to that point. But now it's I see it's possible. It's making sense. He came to Ottumwa, Iowa. I could go to Hollywood. Did you like talk to him? Did you show? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Well, of course I did. And and I noticed two things. He was very nice, but then so many people came out. I saw sort of a fear in his eyes, and he literally ran away. And uh, yeah, I could have figured that out for a long time, and then of course I did figure it out. And I get it. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to be infamous. He wanted to be, but he his personality was such that it wasn't. It, you know, he's not, uh, you know, everybody's buddy. So there was two parts to him. And I think he said, oh, this is the artistic part. And then I have my own private part. Well, in real life now, there's very little boundary between the two, especially now. 
Do you remember when the biggest story in entertainment news was the relationship between Tom Arnold and Roseanne Barr? What was it like to be inside that madness? More with Tom Arnold when we come back. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Mugs, shirts, stickers, patches, tanks, and more are yours for the purchasing at MaxFunStore.com. Hey, you already love the podcasts, so why not take this to the next level and outfit your home and bod with our merch? MaxFunStore.com. Because if you have to wear a shirt, it should be one of ours. Listening to the news all week is a duty and an obligation of citizenship, and also sometimes really a pain. Wait, wait, don't tell me. The NPR News Quiz is like Advil for the aching mind. There's more. The weekend of January 14th, Tom Hanks is guest hosting. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with special guest host Tom Hanks on the NPR One app and npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tom Arnold. His first IMDb credit was in 1987. In the 30 years since then, he's racked up 150 more. I want to play this really amazing clip from the Comedy Central roast of Roseanne. Um, And these roasts are a very weird thing because theoretically the idea of a roast is... Horrible. You know, the premise of a roast is that you are uh, with the people closest to you and you all enjoy joshing around with each other and you're really going to let them have it because they gave you permission. And And that sort of changed into a thing where... Uh, you know, very talented insult comics and comics right. who are doing insult material who aren't necessarily insult comics, right. just insult a famous person that they've never met before. Right. And, and so you say, Dean Martin and those guys, I love watching those roles because they were pals. And when they left the Beverly Hilton or wherever they filmed it, I am 100% sure they went out for drinks and there was a respect and it was whatever. And they were funny. So let's take a listen to this clip of you on the. Roseanne I was so uncomfortable roast. when I went there. This and was you so hadn't nervous. really had much of a relationship with Zero. her for quite a 18 while. Eighteen years had been in the same room in eighteen years. You know, uh, recently Roseanne got in trouble for accidentally wishing cancer on Chick Fil A customers, but accidentally. But you guys can all relax. If she had the power to wish cancer on anyone, I would have been dead in 94. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I met Roseanne 30 years ago. You know, Is remember that? that? Right? Yeah, about 30 years ago. And the uh, first time I saw you perform, I knew you were one of the great ones. And uh, when I got off stage, you said to me, you sure are a funny son of a And I said, thanks. You want to do some blow? And uh, <laughs> we stole the MC's car and we disappeared for three days. You remember that? And so began our very own White Trash Camelot. Hmm. For one brief shining moment. Then, in 1985, Roseanne went on Johnny Carson, which was every comic stream back then, you know? She killed, he laughed his ass off, he gave her a thumbs up, and he invited her to sit on the couch. She got validation from the king that could never be taken away from you. And I just want to say that, Roseanne, you were my Johnny Carson. And thank you for the thumbs up, and thank you for allowing me to sit on your couch for a little bit. Good night. Mm. Well, you know, uh, I had a bunch of funny jokes before that. You did. I did. It was really funny. But, uh, 
You know, the thing was when I finally took it, it was very close to not doing it and doing it. And, uh, uh, but the thing was, I, I was like, these other yahoos, I mean, they're great people, but they don't know. They weren't there in 1983. And uh, I've known her the longest. I got to be able to say something nice at the end of this. I'll think of something nice from when we were married. A moment. I thought I thought I could think of anything. And I said, let's go back. Let's go back in the early 80s. And uh, I wrote that up. And I had literally 18 jokes before that. And wrote that up, and as I'm going out the door, my wife Ashley, who obviously approved this, uh, I, you don't roast your ex-wife unless your wife approves it. By the way, my wife has a funny; she thinks of Tom and Rosanna as these fictional characters because she's she was like ten, you know. When Rosanna and I met, honestly, my wife was six years old. She's she's older now, but so she doesn't have that. It was like some bad reality show. Uh, that she vaguely remembers from her youth. So she doesn't have a visceral connection to, like you would to most ex-wives. So uh, I, I said, I'm going to read these jokes real quick and get through. And then I said this last thing, and I noticed I was a little emotional in front of my wife and my in-laws. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not. That's not going to happen in public. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, it did, and it was genuine. And, uh, you know, you could somebody could do, say, bad things about you, accuse you of bad things, you know, whatever. And it, it, you can still be very grateful to them. I mean, it is a really, all of the personal pain that is associated with that time in your life must be incredible. But it is also a really special thing to have been a part of, mm-hmm. to have been a part of a really special show you know, I, I've only read about it, and, you know, I was a kid when it was on TV. Right. But um, to have been a, a part of making a voice heard mm-hmm. that doesn't often get to get heard in television. Right. Well, I think uh, this – here's the thing that I knew. I didn't know how to run a show. I didn't know how to be a head writer. I knew how to write a little bit when I came in, but I knew I had her back. I mean, it was, I think it's an Iowa thing. Your wife, you got her back. And I also knew, had so much respect for her voice because I'd known her for these years and she was very powerful. And the show is called Roseanne. And yet these guys are, first of all, she never even got created by credit on her own show about her own life, which was that screw up. But she realized that it was game on the rest. Like she was taking, but I would say to people, you know, I was like her bouncer at first. I could do two things. I said no to her. Nobody else can say no to her. And every super creative person needs somebody in their life. They respect enough. They'll say no to them. She would say, I want to win the lottery this year. I would say, no, 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 no. Not on this show. These guys, so they play the lottery, these guys, but they don't win the lottery. I am from exactly where this this show, there's a lot of my hometown in this show. Mate, your next show, you win the lottery. And you wrestle Steven Seagal on a trade. You know, um, as soon as I got out of there, they won the lottery. (laughs) She wanted to show me. Um, but there was, uh, you know, she had a certain respect for me, and, and she, I think she believed that. And I respected the writers. I mean, I, I, my first job in 1988 in show business was working on that show, which is this amazing show with the best writers and actors and producers in the business. And I did that for six years. That is crazy. I, I assume that's how everything goes. That is not how everything goes. Um, but I, would, I just had her back no matter what. I mean, that's so easy to figure that out. It must have been scary for you when you and Roseanne broke up. You know, even with all the criticism that you were getting Mm -hmm. and the two of you were getting, it's still like we have this thing that I can look at Mm -hmm. and check myself against. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I had uh, uh, three step kids, uh, but I I kind of knew I had uh, prepared myself for it. I also feel like it was time. I mean, I I think we both knew that it was time. It was over. Nobody wanted to pull the trigger first. And I also knew that uh, because everybody, uh, the second it happened in April of 1994, and everybody on TV and paper said, that guy will never work again. He rode her coattails, and he had no talent. And uh, I thought, yeah, I'll never work again. (laughs) But I had these great stories to go back to Iowa. Six years in Hollywood. I mean, for real. Um, But but Jim Cameron uh, said, no, 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 no. We've shot this movie. When people see it, everything changes. And I was like, I wish I could believe that for a second. Um, you know, I had fun shooting True Lies. I got to be with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I got to work with Jim Cameron. But uh, I had no idea that it would literally save my career. Um, what I didn't know was, A, Jim Cameron had to threaten to take the movie somewhere else because Fox didn't want me in the movie. How, how many people do that with the most expensive movie of all time? Say, oh, okay, you don't want him? Because he is the guy. Okay, well, I'm going to go across the street to Paramount. I mean, nobody does. I had no idea that was going on. And so Fox people would show up and I'd be like, high five. I know you love me. Uh, when they test screened it, and this is also frightening for me now, uh, it would say Arnold Schwarzenegger, yay, Jim Cameron, yay, J.B. Lee Curtis, yay. And people with my name came up booed. But at the end, they fill out these things and they're like, well, the character I liked the best was the Tom Arnold. Uh, so I was so lucky, as lucky as I was to get that first job from Roseanne. That second big thing from Jim Cameron. Now, as you said, I screw it up after that. Go this way, that way. But it was I was very grateful. And people did. Even at the, at the premiere, it was so weird how people were like, oh, my God, he might be a nice guy. He is so good at this movie. Have you ever managed to get to a point in your work where um, you feel comfortable getting the satisfaction from – the effort that you put in, the work that you do, rather than the satisfaction from, you know, right. <laughs> from convincing the kids that beat you up <laughs> in high school back home in Iowa to like you? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there is getting the satisfaction from the work, from literally the work. I I would say that that for a long time I worried each day that, okay, this is the end. And then as I got close to, to 30 years in the business, so I got 30 years, I went, you know, my wife would always be like, come on, you've always done this, whatever. But it didn't ring true. And then I went, I've done this for 30 years. Yeah, I've kind of done a lot of stuff. You know, I, I did all right. Now, that doesn't take away my fear of failure, you know, failing my family financially. Um, but in a real world, if I moved to Iowa tomorrow, I would never have to work again. But I have to move back to Iowa tomorrow and then I see all the old bullies and have to deal with them, which by I am a hundred percent sure I can beat them all up because, you know, <laughs> I am a hundred percent sure I, I, they just <laughs> don't take care of themselves. I haven't. They just don't take care of themselves as much back there. Tom, I'm very grateful. Thank for you, you for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get. That's to That's fun. To you. It's great to get to know you a little bit too. Tom Arnold. He recently launched his own podcast. It's called Tom Arnold, One Hundred Percent Honest, Pretty Much. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. A.O. Scott is a film critic for The New York Times. He's a good one, too. This is what he wrote about the movie MacGruber. 
The law of diminishing returns is enforced so stringently that the movie succeeds not only in negating its own comedy, but its very being. Well, I stand before you today to vehemently disagree with Mr. A.O. Scott. MacGruber does not negate its own being. MacGruber exists, and MacGruber is awesome. Okay, here, I'll give you this. It's kind of weird that MacGruber is so awesome. It's based on one of the thinnest Saturday Night Live sketches of all time, a genuine one-joke premise. If you missed it on SNL, I can summarize real quick. MacGruber is like MacGyver, but bad. He's bad MacGyver. Not evil MacGyver, incompetent MacGyver. Every sketch, he has to defuse a bomb, but he's bad at it, and he gets distracted, and the bomb blows up, and everyone dies. On the MacGruber Wikipedia page, there is literally a table with the dates that the sketch aired and the things that distracted MacGruber in each sketch. Alcoholism, co-worker gossip, fear of aging. So, yeah, maybe, like in a grand sense, it was a bad idea to make this movie. Except that, no, as it turns out, it was a totally fantastic idea to make this movie. Just imagine a beautifully realized action film from 1989. Val Kilmer's the bad guy. Powers Booth is in it. The very gorgeous Ryan Phillippe is his kind of by-the-book sidekick. And at the center of all of this is Will Forte as the most horrible law enforcement official you could possibly imagine. The plot is Val Kilmer killed MacGruber's wife, so MacGruber has to get the old gang back together for one last job. MacGruber? I thought you were dead. <laughs> ah, last time I saw you, you had a grenade launcher in one hand and an M16 in the other. And you had just ripped a dude's throat out with your bare hands. Classic MacGruber. So, uh... Looks like you're keeping your bod pretty tight. You're looking pretty good yourself. Well, every day's a workout when you got to carry around a 20-pound python in your jeans. You and your d- comments. It's fun to say them. It's fun to hear them. That's why I say them. And that's why I listen. Well, we had some good times together, didn't we? We had some great times. We're about to have some more. Uh-oh. I know that look. I need you, Frank. It's serious. I'm putting together a team. Then I'm in. The director of the movie, Yorma Tacone, is just an incredible craftsman. So incredible that despite the fact that it was made on a Saturday Night Live sketch movie budget, MacGruber's kind of a great action movie, like really nice to look at, a real movie. And then at the center of it is this bizarro madman. As far as I'm concerned, Forte's greatest gift is this sweet, lonely soulfulness. He can do anything on screen, no matter how bizarre or self-interested, and you find yourself just looking into his eyes and forgiving him. MacGruber, the character's self-regard, swings wildly between high and low. One second he's cocksure, he's jumping behind the wheel of his red Miata and punching the stereo button for the soft rock station. A few minutes later, he's on his knees, begging for help from a guy whose nose he broke, like... 
five minutes earlier. I'm so sorry. I'm so damn sorry. I got freaking out here. I killed them. I killed them all. I'm so stupid. I don't know what I'm doing and everybody hates me. And also, basically, every time MacGruber gets backed into a corner, he offers to perform a sex act on whoever is backing him into the corner. Like in pathetic graphic detail. For 99 minutes, this sweet, horrible, scared little boy runs through this action movie, sowing insanity. He doesn't know how to use a gun, like literally doesn't know how guns work. He has sex with a ghost. His number one combat move is taking off his clothes and putting a stalk of celery in his butt. MacGruber is a silly, vulgar, profane, absurd movie. But it's also something like beautiful. So I say, bless you, MacGruber, and let the throat ripping begin. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Pretty cool, right? Bet you weren't expecting that. Yeah. That was really disgusting. Well, get used to it, because that's my main move. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He got help from Christian Duenas. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is provided to us by the Go Team. So our thanks to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. Hey, if you can't get enough pop culture, check out our sister show. It's available only via podcast. It's called Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion show about culture. It's fun, funny, insightful. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Pop Rocket. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.